The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Straight cash, homie. Would you please break the damn story? He took it out. Oh, for you. Hey, a new open for the PFTPM podcast. I like it. I like it. Thanks to Matt Casey for putting that together. Friday edition. I try once per week to sit down in my office, turn on my ISDN box. That is, for those of you who aren't in the radio industry, a magical piece of equipment that, when connected to an ISDN line, creates the illusion that you're in an actual studio. It makes your home into a studio. I've been doing that for I don't know how many years. I've had this thing. I mean, it still is in good shape. Watch, it's going to crap out during this segment. I think I've had it for at least 10 years because I use it for radio coast to coast. And I use it for PFT Live and I use it for the PFT PM podcast. But during football season, what we're doing on Tuesdays, MDS and I will do the PFT PM podcast together. I do it for my TV studio. And then on Thursdays, it's me and Sims with the joint PFT PM and Chris Sims Unbutton podcast. I do that from the TV studio. So once per week... It's just me, my office, which is really kind of messy right now, and the ISDN box and the Twitter feed. And I'm going to answer your questions and only your questions over the course of the next hour-ish. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how many questions there are, how long it takes to answer them. I try to set these with an hour and change to spare before I have something else that I must do. And at 4 p.m. Eastern time, I must do my weekly spot with WIP in Philadelphia. Right now it's 2.50 p.m., so we got about 70 minutes. So without further ado, let's get to your questions. This one comes from Tom G. Post, sent via the PFTPM Posse. Why hasn't anybody ever kicked Burfix bitch ass? My edit. Does he only pick on players on teams without enforcers? Hockey term. Thank you for pointing out that that's a hockey term. And look, there has been plenty of consternation and anger directed at Vontez Perfect. Steelers players couldn't stand him, and there were scuffles from time to time. Now, it's never so bad that someone is going to wait for him in the parking lot and jack him with a sock full of pennies. He does play dirty. He has injured players. But it's not like he's gone Albert Hainsworth and stomped on someone's head with his cleats after the play was over. And on that point, and look, I'm not defending Vontez Perfect, but the longest suspension ever given to any player by the NFL for on-field misconduct was five games given to Albert Hainsworth, 2006, for knocking the helmet off of Andre Garrod, then the Cowboys center, Hainsworth was playing for the Titans at the time, and Hainsworth stomped on the guy's head. And it was a bloody mess. It was an assault. He should have been prosecuted. If you do that to someone out on the street, you get arrested. You get charged. And maybe you end up going to jail. 
And I remember at the time we instigated people to contact the prosecutor in Nashville and they were flooded with emails and phone calls to prosecute Albert Hainsworth. And the evidence was right there. You didn't need anything. You don't need testimony. You just play the tape. Uh, prosecutor may proceed with your case. Yes, Your Honor, I'd like to play this tape. Okay, we rest. And that's it. There are people who think that anything that happens within the confines of a sporting event is fair game. If you do things that are grossly beyond the scope of what you're there for, and I got into this argument with a friend of mine 28 years ago when I was practicing law, and we otherwise should have been productive, but we got into an argument about whether or not you could prosecute someone or sue someone for a fight in a hockey game. I mean, there is a point where it goes beyond what you're there for. Perfect has never done that per se. There's never been a stomp. There's never been dropping an elbow on someone or suplexing a guy after the play. And Hainsworth was suspended five games for that egregious act that he committed against Garrod. And here's the other reality with the with the perfect suspension of 12 games, because I think it's going to get knocked down. And I'm sensitive to the perception that I'm defending. I'm not defending him. I don't think he should be in the league. The Raiders were the ones that hired this guy. See, teams like to have a guy who's on their defense and perfect as a team captain who has that kind of rough and tumble mentality. It's why Greg Williams still is employed by the NFL. He's got no business being in the NFL, but he still has a job because you want that intimidation factor. You want your defense to get the offensive players flinching and not thinking about what they're trying to do by way of executing plays. They want them to be leery of getting popped in the mouth. So the Raiders are partially to blame here for bringing in a guy who has his history. And of course, the Raiders are going to defend him. Derek Carr is going to call him misunderstood. Well, Derek Carr has never been on the wrong side of a Vontez perfect cheap shot. We had a post today at PFT, Le'Veon Bell's comments about Vontez perfect. And it's a very simple analysis. Look, you don't want to deny a guy an ability to earn a living, but... If it's the guy who commits the dirty play or the guy who gets injured by the dirty play that isn't earning a living, why not the guy who commits the dirty play? And I've said all week as well that Vontez Burfick's inability to comply with the NFL's rules, especially as it relates to safety of opponents, if he can't do it, if he won't do it, that's no different than not being able to run fast enough, jump high enough, throw a football well enough kick a football accurately enough, whatever the case may be, somebody else takes your spot. And that's the thing. Remember, anytime we continue to give a guy who doesn't deserve a job in the NFL, a job in the NFL, there's somebody else who wouldn't be inclined to headhunt, who ends up not having a job. But all that said, 12 games is excessive because the whole purpose of the NFL's disciplinary process for on-field misconduct is to utilize progressive punishment. You start low and you increase. And if that doesn't work, you increase. And if that doesn't work, you increase. Only once before was Burfick suspended for on-field misconduct, a three-game suspension. Started as five, reduced to three. He's had other suspensions as, as well. And maybe he had a one game in there at some point. It's hard to keep them all straight. But in 2017, he was suspended five games for a preseason hit on Anthony Sherman of the Chiefs. It was reduced to three. You don't go from three to 12. 
You just don't, especially when five is the most they've ever done for anyone. I think he's going to have it reduced to six games. That would be my guess. There's a chance it goes to four or five. I think it's going to be six. He's already conceded the first one. He came back from London. The appeal is next week. They didn't even bother to try to appeal the thing to get the suspension completely thrown out because I think they understand they're not going to win that. But they are going to win something. I'd be stunned. I'd be shocked. It would turn the concept of progressive discipline on its head if the independent neutral arbitrator ends up deciding to uphold the 12-game suspension. So that really wasn't the question, but it gave me a way to talk about Vontez Perfect, so thank you for that. Next one, Jerry Bissett. What's with the background producers talking, getting ready for the TV side at the end of the first hour? Today was about 15 minutes left in the first hour. Just curious. You know, it's funny. I guess somebody accidentally left a button open and nobody knew. I couldn't hear them. Usually when something like that is going on, I can hear it coming through my headset. So I would say to somebody, hey, turn off the microphone. So... I had no idea it was happening, and I apologize on behalf of the show, and I will make sure that the appropriate people know that it happened, and we need to make sure that that does not happen again. And now I'm curious to go listen to it to hear what they were saying. Up to and including, Florio is a jerk. What else do we have? There's a nice tweet here from Jerry Bissett that I don't want to read because then I would come off as even less or even more of a jerk than I am. But it's nice. It's a nice compliment. I'll take it. Thank you very much, Jerry Bissett. I appreciate it. Let's see what else we have here. This is another one from Jerry Bissett. I think they should take the NFL fringe players, the ones that don't make teams, and teach them how to officiate. Have 20- and 30-year-olds for officials. That can keep up with these awesome athletes, not 50-year-olds. Well, first of all, on behalf of all 50-year-olds, well, I agree. And look, I say this frequently the officials have a very difficult job because they are trying to determine in real time at full speed what is happening with the naked eye unassisted no ability to slow things down all the while they are not protected, no pads, and they are in and among the gladiators. Young, tall, strong, with the hard shell of the plastic helmet and the face mask, which is basically metal bars covered in plastic, and the cleats and the shoulder pads and everything. And they're running around out there in lycra, form-fitting black and white stripes with no protection whatsoever. It is a demanding job physically. And their main objective in that situation is to respect the survival instinct. I don't want to get trampled. Above all else, I don't want to get trampled. Now, as I avoid getting trampled, let's see if I can figure out what's going on in front of me. And we see so many times where something is happening right in front of an official and they get it wrong. And you're looking right at it and you get it wrong. Because you got a lot going on. That's why I'm a firm believer in the concept of the sky judge, a member of the officiating crew who sees what we see at home in super HD, 4K, 8K, 20K, whatever K, whatever the latest K is, that's what they have. And they assist the officiating crew. They, you know, the, we see them huddle all the time. You talk to the referee. Hey, uh, 
uh, hey, Charlie, you drop a flag there. It's that simple. That would have avoided the whole NFC Championship game thing without having to initiate replay review. And you know, when there's a caucus of the officials and they pick up a flag or they drop a flag or they say that a guy was down or wasn't down or whatever, as part of the ruling on the field, they never tell you which guy's making the decision. So they don't have to tell you that it's coming from the sky judge, the video official, whoever. It's a member of the crew in the black and white spandex or lycra or whatever it is who just happens to see what we see. See, the the NFL's officiating function continues to be what they put in place 100 years ago with an evolutionary development that takes into account some aspects of technology, but not enough. They're still using two sticks and a chain to determine whether or not a guy made 10 yards for a first down. And I've said this for so long that I basically quit saying it. They need to tear down the officiating function and rebuild it as if they were inventing the game of football today. If you were inventing a sport today with all the technology that we have available, how would you officiate it? And I think that if you look at it from that perspective, it would be undeniable that there would be an element of real-time video officiating, not replay review. Someone with the benefit of what we see. Because here's the thing. The problem is we criticize because we see what they don't. We see it. So have somebody on the officiating crew who sees what we see. And that, I think, would solve a lot of the problems that we currently have in officiating. One more from Jerry Bissett before we move on to the next questioner. Would you be interested if Pat McAfee would mediate a conversation with you and Aaron Rodgers? He's very conversational on Pat's show, and I think it would be awesome for the quarterback to actually talk to you. I, I guarantee you that Aaron Rodgers will never do it. He will never do it. And I don't have any hard feelings or personal feelings toward Aaron Rodgers. I just think that it's my job to characterize the things people say, to read between the lines, to say that if someone's calling someone out, but they're doing it in a passive-aggressive way, that that's what they're doing and what are the implications. And Aaron Rodgers doesn't like that. Aaron Rodgers wants to be able to make that little drive-by comment and not get any flack for it. And I don't know whether it just like makes him feel better to say it. Like, I just want to be able to say this thing. Like, he's not hostile. I just want to be able to make this little comment, this little snide comment. And I don't want anybody to say, hey, you made a snide comment. It's a weird mindset. It's weird. It's like, hey, man, I pulled off this snide comment, so I actually feel better. But, boy, I'm going to feel bad if people realize I made that snide comment. And if they talk about me making the snide comment, because I don't like people talking about me. It's weird. It really is weird. So, yeah, I, it's probably not going to happen. Tyler Furness is a possible unintended consequence of pass interference being available for replay review that roughing the passer calls may be next. Actually, I could say the consequence of what we've seen so far with PI replay review is that none of these subjective calls will ever be part of the replay process because it's been such a disaster. And that's, it hasn't, look, I think they finally figured out, even if the coaches don't know, we saw it again on Thursday night when Pete Carroll tried to overturn 
Wait, what did he try to do? He tried to get a ruling on the field of no interference turned into offensive pass interference. It ain't going to happen unless the receiver grabs the defensive back and throws him out of the way as the ball's coming in. Al Riveron is not putting a flag on the field. That's not how Al was going to officiate via replay review. He was going to reofficiate the plays by using the available video evidence. And at some point, someone, I believe the commissioner, went to Al Riveron and said, that's not how it's going to be. The bar is going to be higher. And we see how high the bar is last Thursday night. Avante Maddox and Marquez Valdez-Scantling. And Maddox puts his hand into the chin of the receiver and basically repositions his body as the ball's coming in before the ball's coming in. If that's not pass interference via replay review, then I don't know what is, short of Rams-Saints NFC Championship game. So, because that has gone, not poorly, but it's just been a mess and it's created... See, here's the thing. When you make it subject to replay review, you create even greater scrutiny. Now, there's already great scrutiny on roughing the passer, so maybe the argument would be it doesn't change anything. And would it be a good idea to have replay review of roughing the passer? You should be able to look at it fairly quickly. And I've said, and look, I wrote about it today. I said about it on, uh, I said this on PFT Live. The idea that when you're coming in high, you just can't come in high when you're hitting the quarterback. Because even if you go shoulder to shoulder, when you hit him and his body jerks and his head jerks back, it's going to look like, given the proximity of your own helmet, that you hit him helmet to helmet. So you got to come in lower with your shoulder. If you come in low with your helmet, you're violating the rule. You're violating two rules. You're lowering your helmet, initiating contact with an opponent, and you're striking a quarterback with your helmet. See, when it's a defenseless player, you can't hit him in the head or neck area, and you can't hit him with your helmet. But what Clay Matthews did last night with Russell Wilson, because he came in high, even though there wasn't helmet contact with Russell Wilson, it looked like it. And you've got the officials out there, as we said, naked eye, real time. Things are happening fast. And it looked like, with the jerk of the head by Russell Wilson, that he got hit in the, in the head. The same thing happened two weeks earlier. Kamala Correa of the Titans hit Gardner Minshew. And, and the Fox guys, including Mike Pereira, were saying, oh, that's not roughing. Well, it was roughing. He got fined for it. It was helmet to the lower part of Gardner Minshew's helmet. But even if he hadn't hit him, that's a situation where you're going to be more likely to draw a flag. So, I let's fold all of this into what I've been advocating. A member of the officiating crew who could see what happened last night and quickly buzz down to the referee. And, you know, I used to know the names of the referees. There's so many new ones. I don't know who they are. The only one I know at this point, I think, is Cleet Blakeman. Is he still a referee? And Hockley's kid, young Hockley, whatever Hockley. Is it Scott Hockley, Earl Hockley, Jeff Hockley? I don't know. The guy last night, I'd never seen before. I'd never seen him. And, you know, it's funny. I I don't want to... I don't want to be superficial about this, but he didn't have the look of of an NFL referee. He's got the look of really a mortician, but more of a college referee. Like there's an indefinable quality when you see an NFL referee, how they look, how they move, how they talk. 
that tells you it is a cut above what you see in a college game. And you can almost spot who's on the fast track to make it to the NFL. The guy last night, it didn't give me that same sense that this is a cut above. All due respect, maybe a fine gentleman. I have no idea who you are. I don't mean to offend you. But that was just my visceral reaction in watching the game. After the reaction of who the hell is this guy? Let's see what's next. So look, bottom line, I don't know whether pass interference replay review will make it less likely or more likely that we'll have roughing the pass or replay review, but I could see a very good argument in favor of it. It arguably is easier to sift through than pass interference, but I would just make it all part of the sky judge, the video official, whatever you want to call the person who's on the crew and would be there to help clean this stuff up. Another one from Tyler Furness. With Mike Zimmer's stubbornness about running the football, will he ever be able to achieve a balanced, consistent, or a balanced offense that can help the Vikings win consistently? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. The pendulum has swung from pass happy to run, 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 and play action pass, and then when they need to pass, they can. It almost reminds me of the Vikings with... Teddy Bridgewater is quarterback and Adrian Peterson is running back. And I felt like Teddy Bridgewater's development was being stalled by the ongoing reliance on Adrian Peterson. The offense ran through Adrian Peterson. So Teddy Bridgewater wasn't being asked as often as he should be to make plays to sustain drives and score points. And there were moments in the 2015 season, because that's the one year the two of them worked together the most, because 2014, Teddy's rookie year, that's when Adrian Peterson ended up on paid leave and then ultimately suspended. And I don't know that he ever even made it back at any point in the 2014 season. I'd have to look that up. But 2015, they were together the whole year. And I thought, because that offense is so focused on Adrian, 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 Teddy doesn't have those chances to develop the confidence necessary to win games, sustain drive, score points. But when he would be called upon late in a game, he would deliver. And ultimately, the open air playoff game at TCF Bank Stadium, that that throwback to the 70s, and anybody who grew up in the 70s and saw Vikings games in January on TV, blue sky, cold as hell, it felt like that. Teddy Bridgewater drove the Vikings down against a very good Seahawks defense, and but for Blair Walsh shanking a short field goal, they would have beaten them. And it's like, hey, Teddy can do it. And that's why there was so much hope going into 2016. Hey, Teddy can do this. And then he tore up his knee. So my point is this. Zimmer's always wanted to run the ball and play defense, but if you run the ball too much, can you flip it back when you have to? That was the point that Adam Thielen made. On, on Sunday after they lost to the Bears. You, at some point, you're not going to be able to run the ball. You have to be able to pass. Well, maybe you should sprinkle in more passes on the days that the run is going well instead of just taking the easy six, seven, eight yards, and that's what Dalvin Cook will give you when the running game is clicking. Maybe you sprinkle in a throw more frequently instead of just... You know, when you're playing Madden, if you're playing somebody in Madden... And you found a running play that they just can't stop. Like you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And then finally they figure out how to stop it. And you're like, oh crap, what am I going to do now? 
it's almost like that. Oh, it is that. It's football. It's just a simulation instead of the actual thing. But it's very tempting to keep using the same play over and over again if it keeps working, and then all of a sudden it doesn't work. And you know what? I, I've got, frankly, uh, it's, it's, it really is apple to, apples to apples. I've got a pass play that I use when I play online with my ultimate team. And it's got four different, there's five receivers. It's, it's, there's no backs. It's five receivers. And the quarterback uh, has the option to throw to any of them. And there are four different guys. There's one guy I never throw to out of that formation. But there's four guys that I will put on hot routes. And I'll just... Uh, I'll, you know, I, hey, I got this guy, and then they'll they'll focus on that guy, and I got this guy, and then I got this guy, and then I'll change that guy's route, and 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 it and it works, and it's like this is great, this is great, and then you come up against somebody who shuts it down, who knows how to defend it, and it's like, shit, now what am I going to do? And that's kind of what's going on with the Minnesota offense, and that's what they got to get past. And what happened this week has put so much more pressure on everyone, on Kirk Cousins, on Adam Thielen, on. Stephon Diggs, if he plays, on Dalvin Cook, on Kevin Stefanski, on everyone. And I see that there was a fine imposed on Stephon Diggs. No one should be surprised by that. He didn't show up for work on Wednesday. It was a no-call, no-show. He was sick, supposedly. He didn't tell anybody. Did not practice, not injury-related. If they knew he was sick, they would have put illness. They didn't even know he was sick. He didn't tell them. He just didn't show up. So, I I want to be careful with my words here. I feel like the Vikings, under the current regime, are as good as they're ever going to be. And you're going to have, if you roll the dice enough seasons, you're going to have a year where, hey, you go 9-7 and seven or 10-6 and six or 11-5, and five, and maybe you get really lucky like they did a couple of years ago and they went 13-3. and three. But I just feel like this team, as it's currently constructed, as it's currently managed, as it's currently operating, it's not anywhere close to being in the same conversation as the best franchises in the NFL. And whenever they come up against a team like the Patriots, that's it. It's not even close. Now, it was kind of close last year, but... You know, last year, even though they inevitably lost most of their big games, they, they did win in Philly Week 5 last year, but all of the other big games, primetime games at home, like against the Saints, and when they went to Chicago in primetime, remember the goofy pregame speech from Kirk Cousins? They flexed this game, not because of them, because of us, and the Bears proceeded to kick the crap out of them. The, the game against New Orleans, the list goes on and on. At least it kind of felt like they had a chance in each of those. They just couldn't deliver. This year, I mean, that game Sunday just felt like they had, they never had a chance. They could have played 20 quarters and they wouldn't scored as many points as the Bears scored in the first half. It just wasn't there. It wasn't happening. And I think there's going to be more games like that this year. And I just feel like this team has a, has hit its ceiling. And, and, they got to make some tough decisions this year and next year. What are they going to do with Stephon Diggs? How are they going to run this offense? Are they just going to continue to go Dalvin Cook, Dalvin Cook, Dalvin Cook till the wheels fall off? I mean, they're 2-2, two and two, right? They should have beaten the Packers. They had no chance against the Bears. And that's the kind of outcome that 
is going to take a hell of a lot of work to overcome and make people think that this team really belongs in the conversation because at some point your run game is going to get shut down and there's little confidence in the passing game. And everybody's going to say all the right things. It's going to be the same cliches. I mean, what are you going to do? You're trying to change a tire on a moving car. And I just don't have faith. I had been saying they'll be 7-7 seven and seven going into the last two games of the season. I think there's a chance they lose on Sunday now. Pat Shermer knows the Mike Zimmer defense. And I don't think there's a lot of high-level exotic stuff going on. It's just great athletes, great defensive players who run the system very well. But I think there are holes in the system. There are flaws in the system that good coaches can exploit. And Pat Shermer knows that defense from being in Minnesota as the offensive coordinator. And we've seen how Daniel Jones has played. And I just really wonder when you look at now, if they can just run the ball, that's what it's, it's, it's going to be like last week. If they can run the ball against the Giants and run the ball and run the ball and run the ball, then this can be one of those games that they win. And then next week against Philadelphia, if you can run the ball and run the ball and run the ball, it's a game you can win. Then they go to Detroit and they probably lose that one. And then they come home against Washington. And that's another one where they should be able to run the ball and run the ball and run the ball and win. But at some point, you've got lurking this back-to-back, and it's right after Washington, at Kansas City, at Dallas. Those two games are going to serve, I think, as rapid-fire reminders that this team is a long way from being among the elite in the NFL. Fittison Kane. Is Mike Vrabel being let off too easy in regards to the inconsistency of the Titans? I don't know that he's being let off too easy. Now, Marcus Mariota gets plenty of blame, but at some point when you are, it's 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 mind-boggling. When you're favored to lose, you'll win. When you're favored to win, you'll lose. And that was my analysis this week for Bills-Titans. Who's the favorite? Titans by three. Bills are going to win. And if you told me the Bills are the favorites, I'd say Titans are going to win. The Titans win the games they're supposed to lose, and they lose the games they're supposed to win. The Vikings are the other side. They win the games they're supposed to win, and they lose the games they're supposed to lose. But I believe in Mike Vrabel. He just needs to find a way to get his guys playing with the same intensity against the teams they're supposed to beat. Dean Osborne, 42. Will the Patriots move on from Steven Guskowski now? I, look, the only guy that is getting any type of extended benefit of the doubt in New England is Tom Brady. Now, they've had guys in the past, random guys, but, but few and far between, like a Troy Brown that they kept around longer than they should have. But Bill Belichick's the master of the very cold, ruthless, rip the name off the back of the jersey and move on. And will they draft a kicker next year? I don't know. Will they sign a guy? I don't know. We'll see what Mike Nugent can do as the Patriots kicker. But Guskowski is done for the year, and we'll see what happens next year. Dean Osborne, 42. Serious question. Are the Saints a better, more balanced team without Drew Brees? Well, I don't know that they're better, but they're 2-0. and with Teddy Bridgewater starting, and they've won in Seattle, and they've beaten the Cowboys at home, and it puts Sean Payton in the discussion for Coach of the Year, and it's making Drew Brees' thumb heal faster than it ever would have. Not that Drew was going to lollygag or milk this thing, but it creates an even greater sense of urgency. How does it not? And that's what the Saints have to guard against, that Drew Brees is going to try to come back sooner than he should, because you're standing there watching it, and... It's a reminder that there will be life without Drew Brees at some point. And if I'm a Saints fan, I'm thinking, hey, as long as we got Sean Payton here, maybe we'll be okay. So it's been impressive. And I said earlier today on PFT Live, and Big Cat actually didn't ridicule the point. 
that the injury to Drew Brees operated as a hard reset on the Saints franchise, and it wiped away the loss to the Rams in the NFC Championship game, the Minneapolis miracle to the extent that that was still infecting the mindset of any of the players who were on the team then, and it became a new rallying cry. Battle stations with Bridgewater. We've got to do what we can to try to win games until Drew comes back. And there's no longer any thought at any level of any of the players' brains or souls as to how crushing it was to have the Vikings game won in the 2017 divisional round and the Rams game won in the 2018 championship round. And... I had thought the Saints weren't going to make it to the playoffs, but I am willing to admit at this point, I'm willing to self-report to Old Takes Exposed that I was wrong. Dean Osborne, 42. How can the league have different pass interference rules for Hail Mary plays with no definitive language other than you know it when you see it? All plays should be officiated in the same standard with clear and concise publication. I agree with you. I agree with you completely. It drives me crazy anytime the NFL applies the rules differently than the way they're written. And if you apply the rules differently than the way they're written, then you should write the rules differently. You should write the rules to match what you're doing. And I think the problem is, and this is part of their experience with the catch rule. Sometimes when you try to take something that you know is the standard and turn it into writing, as you turn it into writing, you screw everything up. And you create a standard that when you read it, it's like, we apply that as written. It's really not what we're getting at. How would you take the standard for Hail Mary and put it in writing? And that was what they were talking about doing with the replay review process, that they were not going to have automatic review of Hail Mary plays, that the coaches were going to have to challenge those. Well, how do you define what is a Hail Mary play? And if you say it's a play from the 35-yard line and beyond, then you could see coaches engineer things so they they stay on the right side of the 35 or the wrong side of the 35, or maybe you concede a few yards, or you you know you don't tackle the guy, or you you pull him a few more so that la- you know there's all sorts of ways that it would be coached to try to get the desired result, whether you want the protection or you don't want the protection of replay review for a Hail Mary. So they quickly realized there's no way to objectively define a Hail Mary play. It's just, you know, when you see it. And when you see it, you know that there's a higher standard than normal pass interference. Well, what is the higher standard? Well, basically, a guy's got to get wiped out. Well, Marvin Jones got wiped out on Sunday by Daniel Sorensen, and they didn't even take a second look at that. So it just creates confusion. And I don't know what they can do, but with the resources available to the National Football League and the lawyers available, I'd like to think that there is a lawyer somewhere who could draft language to reflect the higher standard for pass interference that applies when there's a Hail Mary. Because as currently drafted, as the rules are currently written, the officiating department is overlooking what otherwise would be pass interference in situations where it's a Hail Mary. And and you could even, there's a way to codify know it when you see it. You can have 
a provision in the pass interference rules that says in circumstances where it appears objectively obvious that the offense is attempting a long pass known colloquially as a Hail Mary that and then you come up with the standard for what is interference only egregious contact or dramatic contact or more significant whatever it is whatever it is there's a way to codify it so what you're enforcing matches what's in the rule book i don't know why they won't do it but they've never you know sought my input on that one but i do think that it's it's a flaw because it it can be a a very ambiguous phrase and you may have different referees who interpret this unwritten rule differently than the way others do tom marshall otherwise known as at a red zone alk when will you come over to a london game we've got everything you need wine cigars good pizza probably and most of all a very favorable exchange rate for mrs florio to exploit while you're working here's the problem until we have a primetime game on nbc in london and the problem is that would be what 1 a.m kickoff because the NBC primetime game is 8.20. We're not going to have a game in London. I'm, I can't go to London on a Sunday. I can't. I got to be in the studio in Connecticut to watch all of the games. So I want to get there in the off season. I got to get a passport. Sims and I want to come over. And Sims will do his horrendous British accent. Hopefully he won't. And he'll say cheerio to people when he's greeting them and they will think he's crazy because it's actually what you say when you are departing. But that would be fun. I just can't do it during the season. Playoff cap. Can you fully explain the Rams Chargers stadium situation and the interest and conflicts of all parties? How likely is it that the Chargers leave LA? Also, is it a coincidence that Brady is an unrestricted free agent after this season or are there rumblings that he'll hang it up after the year? Let me answer the first question. I can't fully explain the Rams Chargers stadium situation and the interests and conflicts of all parties, but I can give you my understanding of what's going on there. This is a Rams stadium. Stan Kroenke is building the stadium. The Chargers had first dibs on becoming a tenant in the Stan Kroenke stadium. Now, they also could have become co-partners, but they didn't want to do that because that would have taken too much money. So they became tenants. And if they wouldn't have done it, the Raiders would have had second shot at becoming tenants of the new stadium that's going to open in Englewood next year. So it's it's like an apartment. It's like a it's like a duplex where the landlord lives in half and a tenant lives in the other half. That's basically it. So the Chargers are going to pay rent, and the Chargers are going to kick in. There's certain provisions and. PSL payments are going to go a long way toward funding the relocation fee, which is separate and apart from rent payments or anything like that. You have to pay the rest of the league for the privilege of moving into the LA market. But, you know, there are concerns about cash flow. There are concerns that there aren't going to be enough PSLs sold, that there aren't going to be enough tickets sold to make this all work financially. Now, I think the reality is whatever the shortfall from the stadium revenues the tv revenue is so significant that it's going to make up for it now it could put the chargers in a position where they don't have the same cash that others do but i don't think it's as 
Remember there was the story a couple weeks ago that Fred Rogan was teasing and that ultimately was just kind of a dud. There really wasn't anything there. Somebody summarized it for me and it's like, there's really nothing here. Look, the LA market was empty for 20 years. And what happened was you had an entire generation from cradle to high school of kids who could pick any team they want and they developed loyalties. And that's good for business when those other teams come to town now, whether it's the Steelers or the Patriots or the Dolphins or the Vikings or whoever, but it's going to take some work to rebuild the Rams and Chargers fan bases in LA. The Rams got there a year early and the Rams were there more recently. The Chargers were there for one season in 1960, the first year of the AFL. But it's going to take work. It's going to take time. And you ultimately have to win. You have to win and not just get to the playoffs. You have to win in the playoffs. And nothing like getting to the Super Bowl to really get a city behind a team. But I still don't get the impression the Rams are doing as well as you would think they would be doing in a market the size of L.A. But the Chargers aren't leaving. Look, they got to pay for this stadium now. And the Chargers' ticket revenue and suite revenue and whatever other revenue they can create is part of what's going to pay for the stadium. Chargers aren't leaving. Rams aren't leaving. They're going to make this work. They may just not make as much money as they thought they were going to make, but they're going to do what they can to make it work. The other question, is it a coincidence Brady is an unrestricted free agent after the season or are there rumblings he'll hang it up after the year? I mean, there are some who think that if they win the Super Bowl and get to number seven, that that's when he'll walk away. And Sims' theory is if he gets to number seven, people will say he's better than Michael Jordan, more accomplished than Michael Jordan because Jordan had six. But I look at the way Brady's playing. Like, why would you stop now? Why would you stop? You would be tormented for every year after you retire that you think you could still be playing. And every Sunday you'd be saying, man, I could still be playing football. Why not play as long as you can? I think whatever friction there was between him and his wife has been resolved. I think he spends more time with the family in the offseason than he did, and that helps to eliminate or at least minimize some of that friction, some of that tension. I would play as long as I can. But the reality is at some point between now and age 50, he's not going to be able to play at the level he's playing at. Or maybe he will. At some point between now and age 60, he's not going to be able to play. At some point, he's got to no longer be able to physically do what he's doing. The question is, will it happen during football season? And if it does, could he just quit during football season? I think what would happen is the graceful way to go out would be to have an injury that ends your season. And then you just ride it out and you retire at the end of the season instead of like retiring during the season. Rob G, otherwise known as On Tour Forever. Why doesn't the NFL allow any call to be reviewed? It's not like it will make the game even longer. Coaches still have a limited number of challenges, and this could fix some of the egregious errors. That's the Bill Belichick approach. Anything that you can see on a screen, subject to replay review. And if they got it wrong, they got it wrong. If it's clear and obvious that they were wrong, then they were wrong. I got no problem with that. And it's all part of the coach's challenge. It's up to the coaches. They got two that they can use as long as they have timeouts when they use them. And they get a third one if they get the first two right. Yeah, it's up to you. Now, the thing is, see, each 
each facet of the game that is currently subject to replay review, you develop a sense of what it takes to overturn it. And look at what we're going through with pass interference. How high is the bar? We still don't really know where the line is between Rams, Saints, and you know something that doesn't get overturned and called pass interference. If you allow anything to be reviewed, how do you develop that standard for what's going to be overturned? Is it a really high bar? Or is it, we're just going to look at this and we're going to reofficiate it with visual evidence? That's the, see, you can reofficiate with visual evidence. Did a guy get two feet down? Was the knee down before the ball came out? That's what you're basically doing. You are reofficiating the ruling on the field, and you're confident that either the video is going to show that that ball was out before the knee was down, or it wasn't out before the knee was down, and if it's inconclusive, then the ruling on the field stands. But for some of these things where there's any type of judgment, what's holding or or roughing the passer or an illegal hit on a defenseless receiver or pass interference, it's not as easy to reofficiate the play using the video evidence. But for the clear, bright line, it did or it didn't happen, the foot was down or it wasn't, the ball was out or it wasn't, those are the ones that you can essentially reofficiate. And that's what they're doing. They're reofficiating with the benefit of the visual evidence, and if there's any doubt, then the ruling on the field stands. So, I just think that if you give the coach the power to throw that red flag, and it's not one of those cut and dried black and white questions, not many things are going to get overturned. And maybe that's good. Maybe that's the way it should be. I think the smart coaches are not going to throw the flag to try to challenge a decision on the field that there was no pass interference. And as we talked about earlier this week, the Mike Tomlin decision to try to challenge a ruling of offensive pass interference and have the flag picked up, they're never going to pick it up unless the visual evidence shows that the player who was deemed to have committed interference never even touched the guy. And there was contact. There was contact on that play, and Mike Tomlin knew or should have known based upon his status as a head coach and also his role on the competition committee, he should have known. It didn't take me much to figure out that rarely, if ever, is a flag going to be picked up via replay review when there's a ruling on the field of pass interference. And you're wasting your challenge flag and you're wasting your time out when you do it. So that would all factor into how the coaches proceed and you give them the power to do it. But I think the practical reality would be there would be fewer than we expect instances where the ruling on the field is overturned. On Tour Forever has another question, or it's just an observation. Wish me luck on Monday. Going under the knife for a shoulder surgery. No golf for a while. Well, yeah, we do wish you luck and uh, you know, do what they tell you to do to rehab and shoulder surgery. I've never had shoulder surgery, but I know people who have, and the idea that you like can't lay down in bed and you've got the harness on and you gotta sleep in a recliner or whatever. It's just it's 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 horribly inconvenient. So Rob G, we wish you the best. One more from Rob G. Best football movie of all time. Please don't say any given Sunday. We are Marshall and the original Longest Yard are my favorites. For me, 
I really like the best of times with Robin Williams and Kurt Russell. I really like that movie. Now, the first Longest Yard was an experience for me because it was the first time that I ever heard anyone say the F word in the presence of my mother. So it just kind of had this weird, kind of exciting, intoxicating, like, I'm allowed to laugh at this. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to acknowledge that I know what the guy just said. I can find this funny. When you go back and watch the original Longest Yard, eh, yeah. it's, it's good. It's not great. And the newer Longest Yard, which is now 14 years old, there's, it's got its moments, but yeah, I, I, Rudy was really good. Uh, Draft Day is the worst. Leatherheads was horrible. It's easier to say what was bad than what's good. But I really, I really like the best of times. I feel like that doesn't get the, the credit it deserves. Terry Gensler wants to know if we can get an extra not sticking to football segment today. The topic I'm referring to is obvious, I would think. I will put a pin in that. I've got about 24 minutes left before I have to wrap this up. So I'll give you my thoughts off the top of my head on not sticking to football once we get through more of these questions. James McDonough, Dr. J144, believes that roughing the passer should be reviewable. 15 yards, automatic first down is game-changing. Ruffing decided the winner of Broncos Bears this year and also did last night, in my opinion, with Clay Matthews. They need to be called right. Agree or disagree, they should be reviewable. I don't have a problem with it because, again, I think that it is... I think that it is easier to officiate that than it is to officiate pass interference or non-calls of pass interference. But I would prefer... I would prefer... The replay official, video official, sky judge, member of the officiating crew who's in the booth seeing what we see at home, chiming in and saying, pick up a flag or drop a flag. PFTPM Posse is making a request for a return from Mark Leibovich on PFTPM. PFTPM Posse. I don't even know the name of the guy who runs it. He's in Mexico and he's drunk. And he's almost finished reading Big Game. Hopefully he's drinking Johnny Walker Blue. Reverend Markworth, I know you are interested in the Mafia. I didn't like how that sounded. There's a pretty good podcast called Mafia that focuses on one person or event in each episode. It's well done. You know, here's the problem. I've tried to listen to podcasts as background noise when I'm working. But what happens is you have to actively listen. Like, I can have a TV show on, especially if it's a show that I've watched before, like it's Seinfeld or The Office, and even some other shows where I kind of have the gist of what's going on while I'm working, and I don't have to stop and, like, watch it to know what's going on. Movies, I can do that, too. But I've tried it with podcasts. I tried it with the Steve McNair podcast, and I can't do both. I can't work and also... Avoid being in a spot where I have to go back five minutes and do it again because I wasn't like actively paying attention. So I, I, and I try, I think I tried one of the mafia podcasts and same thing. It, it's, it all just, it, it, you need to be paying attention. Like you could listen to this and you can tune in and out because I'm going from topic to topic and you can wait to hear, is there something he says that I'm interested in? Chances are there isn't. So I can just go about my business. But 
the the podcast, the serial podcast, the you know that, that are biographical or true crime or whatever, you got to stay locked in, or you're not going to follow what's going on. Dr. J144, I think Mike Zimmer is a good coach and probably underrated, but is he good enough leader to win a Super Bowl? He clashed with multiple offensive coordinators like Norv and DiFilippo. Diggs doesn't believe in what he's doing anymore. Zimmer strikes me like Bill O'Brien. They seem hard to get along with. Like I, I, yeah, I don't know. And, and here's the thing. Only one team wins a Super Bowl every year, and the Patriots are the only team that seems to have cracked the code. So is Zimmer good enough to win a Super Bowl? I think so, but a lot of things have to fall your way. See... You can either bend the road to the Super Bowl in your direction, or you can just do your best and hope that you get a lucky break at the right time. And I feel like that's the category a lot of coaches are in. You do your best, win the games you're supposed to, steal some of the ones you're not supposed to win, and then hope that you can just get hot and you can get some more luck and things just kind of go your way and maybe you can ride that all the way to a championship. CA Hawkins 217. Who is your favorite relationship with Jim Halpert? Purse girl, Amy Adams, Karen Filippelli, or Pam Beasley and why? And I like the response from Andy Ebervane, Dwight Schrute because of its depth and complexity. Yeah, you know, isn't it funny for all the years that show was on were those the only three relationships that Jim had? Amy Adams, Karen Filippelli, and Pam. Was there anyone? Did he even go on a date? I remember he tried to call the HR person who was on the booze cruise. And Kelly Kapoor gave him a hard time for asking a girl out via the phone. I remember that. But I don't think there was ever anything else for Jim. Yeah, I don't know. I need to go back and watch The Office again. I haven't watched it lately. I like the Dwight Schrute response, though. Mike Verna, with the very real possibility of spending the next 35 years in a miserable marriage, do you envision a scenario where the 49ers and Santa Clara end their relationship prematurely? Well, you got to pay for the stadium, and you got to have football games there to pay for the stadium. Ten a year. you got bonds and other crap. They have to stay. They're under contract. They don't have to get along. They just have to play football games. Where it's falling apart is as it relates to the management agreement for non-football events and Santa Clara wants out of it and the 49ers want to stay part of it because they make money off of it but that part of the marriage just isn't working so look they can't split until the stadium's paid for now does it mean the 49ers will go elsewhere in 35 years quite possibly there's other options in the Bay Area but remember it's harder and harder to pay for these stadiums, and they get more and more expensive all the time. At the Frugal Degenerate, will Darius Geis ever be able to overcome the incompetence of his front office to live up to half the expectations we had for him? Probably not. Gears of Ted, is TNF a distraction for teams who play the week before? All four Road Thursday teams have lost at home the Sunday prior this season. I wasn't aware of that little, that little nugget. So the looming short week that kind of gets you off your game, like you're dreading the short week, so you lose the game. I don't know. I'd have to look more broadly at the performance of the teams playing on Thursday night when they play the prior Sunday. Buffalo Guy 83, should Buffalo think about trading for a receiver before the trade deadline? Both A.J. Green and Stephon Diggs keep popping up as potential targets. Who would you rather have? Well, I don't know that Green is healthy. I don't know how close he is to being healthy. And... 
He's in the last year of his contract in Cincinnati. He always gets linked to the Patriots. There's just been this belief that he'd be perfect for the Patriots, but Patriots fans are clamoring for Stephon Diggs. And if a veteran receiver who is a difference maker is in play and the Patriots are thinking about making a move for the guy, that's all the more reason for a team that competes with the Patriots to try to get him. So, look, they've got John Brown, they've got Cole Beasley, and they're both having a decent impact in their first year with the team. It's just always hard, I think, to, unless the offense is identical to an offense that the player has been in in the past, it's very hard to take a veteran receiver and jam him in on the fly during a football season. How do you ever get up to speed? Gears of Ted, has Minnesota blown their Super Bowl window by hitching their wagon to Cousins? Yes. CZ Walt, <laughs> there's nothing more to say. Yes. Chris Sims has previously analyzed the degree of difficulty involved for quarterbacks of run-heavy offenses. Last year's Russell Wilson and Dak Prescott. Run, 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 run. Third and nine, now make a play, Mr. Quarterback. No easy throws to get the quarterback going in the flow, etc. Any of that going on with Cousins? Well, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. When you aren't passing because you want to, but because you have to, it puts more pressure on the quarterback when the time comes to make a throw. And I think you do build a little confidence. You know, we talk about how you get a receiver involved early. It builds some confidence. You get the quarterback with some easy completion, simple stuff. Those 15 plays that so many coaches like to script. Just come up with something where, you know, you just, you just kind of, you, you know, you work the kinks out. And you feel good. Yeah, I can do this. I got this. Let's go. I mean, these are still human beings. So we try to make them into robots. And this is one of the things I don't like about analytics because it ignores the human element. And there's a very real human element, whether it's leadership, whether it's confidence, whether it's lack of confidence, whether it's ability to make a big play in a big spot or inability to make a big play in a big spot. It's the little brother playing his big brother in ping pong vibe. When you think you finally got Big Brother beaten and you start thinking about it, can you deliver or do you shrink and blow it? These plays are not run in a vacuum. And that's why I was critical today of Greg Zerline. You can tell me, hey, the guy makes all of his kicks. Well, you can make all your kicks all game long, but if you miss the one with the game on the line, you've, you've kind of failed the test. And I think the reason why the Rams are saying all the right things, like I said earlier, they don't want to get the yips now. So, yeah, I think there is something to that. This is Matt Mielko of NBC Sports Bay Area, and I caught up with the GOAT, Jerry Rice, on the latest episode of the 49ers Insider Podcast. We discussed a number of topics, including Larry Fitzgerald moving into second place all time on the NFL career receptions list. Yeah, so Larry got me looking over my shoulder right now. <laughs> what do you think but, of that? You know, you know we, we, we talked about this, and uh, he said, well, Jerry, you have nothing to worry about. Download the 49ers Insider Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts to hear my interview with Jerry Rice. Next question comes from at Gears of Ted. Is Baltimore not as good as we thought after the Miami game? They haven't been running rough sims. <laughs> so if it's, if it's not rough shop or not rough shot, let's call it rough sims over the league in the following three games. I think what happened was the Ravens allowed themselves to think that they were on the front end of a special season. You know, a team of destiny type of a season. And they went to Kansas City and they emptied the playbook. And they took every chance they could. Because if you can go to Kansas City and beat the Chiefs, 
then it fulfills the narrative that it's a special season. And they fell short. And then they lost the following week to the Browns at home. And now they're back in that same, we got to scratch and claw and we got to do what we can to win. And maybe we'll make it to the playoffs and maybe we won't. But that, that special season vibe has evaporated quickly for the Ravens. And I think they're going to lose in Pittsburgh this weekend. At Wolvie 58, how long do you think it's going to take Dan Snyder to reach the place in an owner's life when he actually learns to keep his hands off? It would seem even Jerry Jones has learned this to some degree, something I never thought I'd see. I think Snyder has kind of stepped away from being as, as involved, as meddling as he used to be. The problem is the guy he's got in charge of the team, all due respect, doesn't know what he's doing. Terry Gensler wants Ira Kaufman on the podcast. We'll take that under advisement. It's hard during football season. It really is. But we'll take that under advisement. C. Hawkins, C.A. Hawkins, 217, with all the offensive weapons the Bears have, why can't they get the offense going, or do they not really have any bona fide offensive weapons? I just think they need to run the ball more. They need to have an identity in the running game. They should have kept Jordan Howard. They gave Jordan Howard away. Keep him for one more year, let him leave as a free agent, and then you get a nice compensatory draft pick in 2021. What was it, like a sixth-round pick that can become a fifth-round pick? It was something that was like, my God. And if that's what you're getting from the Eagles, I mean, that's your best offer, right? You're clearly sending him to, I mean, you're sending him to a team you're competing with in the NFC. It's a team that just beat you in the playoffs, so you may see Jordan Howard again as soon as next January, and they play at some point in the regular season. I, I, I would have just kept him. And let it, the problem is, if you build the running game around him and then he becomes a free agent, you get a lot of pressure locally to keep the guy around. Oh my God, I can't believe they let Jordan Howard become a free agent. Gears of Ted, when does Dan Quinn get fired this season? Well, let's take a look at the schedule. Usually the bye week or the mini bye after the short week game are the ideal times for a guy to be fired. And for the Atlanta Falcons, after... At Houston and at Arizona, they have home games against the Rams and the Seahawks. You lose both of those, you limp into your bye week, and you could be gone. Now, I don't know who takes over. Could it be Dirk Cutter, the former Buccaneers head coach? Could it be Dirk taking over? Who else is on this coaching staff? I'm looking at the names here. I'm looking for somebody who jumps off the page, who has head coaching experience, and it's Cutter... And it's Cutter. And, man, either they shrunk the print in the record and fact book, or I can't see. Mike Malarkey is the tight ends coach. He'd be a candidate. Raheem Morris, assistant head coach, wide receivers, offensive passing game coordinator. Raheem Morris would be a candidate as well. So they got three guys that they could look to. Morris, Malarkey, and Cutter. But I think the game to watch... October 27, Seattle. After that game, bye week, and it could be literally bye week for Dan Quinn. Sushi roll. Should the Vikings try to pawn off Cousins and his salary as part of a trade for Diggs if they keep them both at the end of the year? Who's going to want Cousins and his salary? Nobody. The only way that the Vikings could unload Cousins and we were spitballing about this earlier in the week, and I don't want to jinx Jimmy Garoppolo, but if Jimmy Garoppolo suffers a season-ending injury between now and the trade deadline, remember, 
what was it? It was Jason Campbell when he was with the Raiders in 2011 and Carson Palmer was quote-unquote retired, i.e. he had quit on the Bengals at the time. Jason Campbell broke a collarbone. No, wait a minute. Yeah, Jason Campbell broke a collarbone and in came Carson Palmer as the quarterback of the Raiders. So if Jimmy Garoppolo would would suffer a season-ending injury, and of course if it happens, I'm going to be blamed for putting the fascia on him, then maybe Kyle Shanahan would say, I'll take Kirk Cousins and keep him for the rest of this year and next year and not keep Jimmy Garoppolo. That's the only way it happens. All right. Uh, I got nine more minutes. Let me scroll through these. Good question from Drewski Bruski. In four weeks, how are offenses still works in progress? For example, the Packers and their offense, shouldn't they kind of have it figured out? And it still takes time. It still takes time, especially a new system. And the Packers' offense was very good in their last game. They just lost. Gears of Ted is the Patriots' defense on par with the 2000 Ravens. Four games with no offensive touchdown, five with one. Has to be some kind of record. Also, get Washington this week. Might be six games with one touchdown. Hey, Tom Brady told Jim Gray of Westwood One earlier this week that this is the best defense he's seen, and he's been there since 2000. Terry Gensler has a pretty good question. Was John Filippo actually undervalued in Minnesota? Could he be a major factor in Gardner Minshew's success? I mean, yeah, maybe maybe DeFilippo was he was too good at the passing game, so he didn't want to run. And the thinking was he was trying to showcase himself to become a head coach. And Mike Zimmer just got frustrated because Zimmer was telling him run the ball, and he didn't. Dirtbag1327, have you tried the Madden Superstar KO mode? I have not, but I've been meaning to. Dirtbag1327 also wants to know how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. Uh, the world will never find out. Ollie TM, what stops high school football players from graduating a full year or two early and starting the three-year clock to hit the NFL? We hear of players graduating a semester early, so why not a year? It's not tied to when the player graduates. It's tied to when his class graduates. All right. Um, let's do this. I got seven minutes before I have to do WIP. There was a request earlier to, you know, talk about non-sports events. So this is the point where any of you who are not interested in hearing any of my thoughts on anything unrelated to sports, and of course there's one topic that is dominant right now, you can go ahead and stop listening. Thank you. I appreciate you. We'll be back next week with more PFTPM. Here's your chance to go. And now you're gone. Anybody who stuck around, look, I I haven't given this any thought. So this is all top of my head. Thoughts are just going to flow. The one thing that troubles me the most about what's currently happening, I keep waiting for Superman to show up, if that makes any sense. Like, where is the person who is going to stand up and say, what's going on is completely unacceptable and it has to end. And I know that there's a process involved. And I know that the person that we're talking about has rights. And they're going to do everything they can to slow the process down. Obfuscation, delay. Tactics that we see in litigation all the time. You hire lawyers to slow things down as much as they possibly can. Because maybe you can run out the clock. 
And maybe you can just derail the whole thing. And maybe public opinion that seems to be turning in favor of impeachment at this point eventually turns the other way because we just get sick of it. We don't have the patience for it. But I keep waiting for someone, you know, I used the phrase earlier in the day, whether it was the PFTPM podcast, PFT Live, or something else I was doing. I don't know. It all blurs together. The grown-up in the room. Who's going to be the grown-up in the room? I articulated that specifically as it relates to the Vikings. Who's in charge there? When your nation is facing what Chuck Todd called yesterday a national nightmare, and Chuck Todd, and I don't know whether he was sick or what, like had a cold or allergies, but he's the only one that I've seen, and I've been watching a lot of cable news the past couple of weeks after this Ukraine. I had a sense that when this Ukraine thing first hit that it was going to be a big deal. And no one has really projected the tone that conveys the gravity of the moment. And we need that because it seems like the front line of defense is act like this is all normal and acceptable. I mean, that's what we've done. We've, it, it, and I, I posted the tweet earlier today. I didn't do it. I did it, but the person who told on me is incredible. I did it, but other people do worse things. I did it, but I have every right to do it. I did it. I'm doing it right now. And I'll do it again. That's kind of the life cycle that this has taken. And it's gaslighting to an extreme. Because gaslighting is more of a gradual process. Gaslighting is just convincing someone that their perception is wrong over a extended period of time. This is high speed jet fuel lighting. And, you know, we've gotten to a point very quickly where the argument was, I didn't do this. And now we're at the point where, yeah, I did it and I have the right to do it and we're doing it right now and there's nothing wrong with it. See, when you're caught red-handed, that's the best approach. It's genius. I was caught red-handed. So, I can't deny that I did it, but I can say that it's okay to do it. Remember the comment about I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose any of my supporters? It's basically what's going on right now. And I keep waiting for someone, if there is someone, in the government who has the power, whether it's a prosecutor, whoever it may be, somebody who can stand up, apply the law in an aggressive and forceful and definitive fashion and move this needle toward the outcome that justice seems to require. We'll see how that unfolds in the coming days and weeks. I gotta go. WIP's waiting for me. Thanks for everything. Thanks for the support. All weekend long, profootballtalk.com, PFTPM. Coming up next week, multiple days, Tuesday, Thursday, the PFTOT becomes part of the PFTPM podcast feed. So you'll be hearing a lot from us. Enjoy the games this weekend. We'll talk soon. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. 
Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.